pre-dropped here, no doubt. Yeah, pre-dropped. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. It made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. Good morning, folks, and welcome to the drop zone. Dylan DeChair coming at you from Seattle, Washington. My associate, Sean Zock, reporting live from Chicago, Illinois. Sean, how are you? Good. I actually was reporting live on Labor Day. While a lot of people were enjoying their holiday, I was at the computer watching Luke Donald make his six European Ryder Cup captain's picks. Um, that was at 8 a.m. Central Time. So, you know, while everyone was sleeping in, enjoying their their holiday weekend, just know that this podcast was grinding for you. At least half of this podcast. I did check the selections when I woke up. Uh, I want to talk about those today, Sean. And I want to do a little, a little rewind on the PGA Tour season, um, put a bow on 2023, and hit people with a draft of things that we forgot happened this year on the PGA Tour. Um, but Sean, I, I guess that's a good place to begin, is with Luke Donald, is with the selections. Can you first, I guess, just run us through who is on the European Ryder Cup team? Yeah. All right. So Rory and Rom, we know those guys that are made automatically qualified they are joined by rob mcintyre uh as an auto qualifier he's the like 129th best player in the world according to data golf he qualified largely because of his scottish open performance you remember when he finished second to rory uh at renaissance club that is like the most valuable performance i think of anybody this entire year in terms of the Ryder Cup. It's kind of right up there with like Brooks Kepka winning the PGA Championship, kind of booking his way onto this team. Um, also on the team, automatically qualifying, Tyrrell Hatton, Matt Fitzpatrick, been playing great lately, Victor Hovland, maybe the best player in the world right now. Um, those are your auto qualifiers, and they were joined by Tommy Fleetwood, frankly, a top 10 player in the world right now. Justin Rose, probably a top 25 player in the world right now. He won <laughs> earlier this year. Sepp Straka, the Austrian with the Southern accent. Uh, big boy won the John Deere Classic this year and then finished T2 at the Open. Shane Lowry from Ireland. He was kind of like the heart and soul of uh, whatever was good about the European team at Whistling Straits in 2021. Uh, Ludwig Aberg. Now that's a name that not everyone recognizes. Um, he has not played in a single major championship. He is without a doubt the kind of like premier rising European talent. He just won this past weekend. He's 23 going on 24 was the best player in college golf last year. Uh, and then Nikolai Hoygaard, who has been a pro for a lot longer than Aberg. Um, but is like a year and a half younger than him. So uh, definitely new blood on the European team. There are going to be four rookies, which is a lot of rookies, um, but they are playing at home. This is a European Ryder Cup, and the American side has not won across the Atlantic in 30 years. So there's been this funny thing, I think, happening lately, is that my friends who listen to the show they think I'm kind of going pro-Europe. They acknowledge that I lived in Europe for the past two summers, and they kind of just think that I'm leaning in that direction. And in response to that, I'm going to go full <laughs> in the European direction, Dylan. I actually now, looking at this team, I think Europe's going to win the, win the Ryder Cup. So they're right. Your friends are correct. My friends are correct. They've been on to me. Um, this team just looks... Like it has honestly one hole, and that's Bob McIntyre. I think I think uh, Hoygaard as a captain's pick is actually more obvious than we were giving credit to. I think everyone is looking at the fact that Adrian Moronk won the Italian Open this year six months ago, basically at this point, and are saying, well, you know, he won his way onto the team. Hoygaard has been playing really, really good golf for the last month. He played really good golf the last couple of weeks. That's what Luke Donald said in his presser yesterday. He just said, like, what he's done the last two weeks has been really quite special. Um, you know, he finishes third uh, in in the, the Czech Masters, T5. This week, T14 at the Wyndham, like, he actually bounced between tours. He bounced between continents. He has, hasn't lost form yet. So he is the new blood, right? <clears throat> Aberg is the new blood. And 
I guess what's kind of interesting and what is pushing me in the European direction is something that we've said on this podcast uh, for months and months and months and months. You only need to have four teams at a time. Why wouldn't you pair Rory with Aberg, a driving machine? Why wouldn't you pair maybe Aberg with Victor Hovland, the best player in the world at this point? Uh, it just feels like they these assets weren't there when we were looking at this team in January. I mean, Aberg was finishing his final season at Texas Tech. Sepp Straka was this kind of roller coaster of form. We couldn't decide if Nikolai Hoygaard was the best Hoygaard, but the past two months he's been the best Hoygaard. So it just feels like not only are the, the core seven European players playing their best golf, like they've kind of backfilled it with people that we weren't thinking about. And uh, they're the youngest European team in a long time, average age of 30. I just... There's more there than we ever thought there would be, uh, especially when you think back to where the European team was, literally with tears in their eyes at Whistling Straits. Um, I, I'm definitely, th I, I think they're going to have the juice. And I also, if you look at the American side, it's hard to like point like that duo or that that couple of teams. They're going to carry us, uh, you know, across the Atlantic. I'm curious, just looking down this list, first, who are the last two or three guys in? Are they the guys that you mentioned? Like, uh, who's who's the last man in on this European side? Well, it's Hoygaard. He's he's definitely the last man in. Um, I don't know if Bob McIntyre, if he doesn't automatically qualify, if he actually makes this team. I'll maybe you, you what, go he with... probably doesn't. He probably does not make this team. At that point, maybe you go with the Hoygaard double. Maybe Adrian Moronk does make the team at that point. If Adrian Moronk has any, uh, I guess, any true claim to stand on, it's that maybe Bob McIntyre got a little too many points. Maybe the qualification points doled out for a solo second at the Scottish Open. If that's your calling card, maybe that's maybe that's too much because um, Moronk has been way more consistent than McIntyre has been all season long. Um, but like we've said many times, you can hide people in the Ryder Cup. Like if we need, if we, if they need to hide Bob McIntyre, he only has to probably play two, two sessions. He's got to play a Sunday singles match in which he could get, you know, slotted in against Sam Burns. And who says he can't beat Sam Burns? Like I anticipate Luke Donald doing a bit of that um, while also kind of blooding, you know, the, the new era of the European team. I think it's kind of interesting when you look at the Americans, they kind of feel like um, it feels like the same approach that they've kind of always taken and that really, really worked at Whistling Straits, but it certainly didn't work in France. So I don't know. At this point, you're going to have five of the 10 best players in the world on the European team. And then Justin Rose, like Ryder Cup legend, Shane Lowry, budding European legend. And then like, Guy's in really good form. So I don't know. I like it. It's really interesting looking at the way that the European team was constructed and the way that the U.S. team was constructed. And there's actually, in my mind, a lot of parallels, especially in the way we're talking about the guys that just got left off. Um, I would say on the European side, though, on the American side, it was almost a default thing of like no one really busted their way through the door. On the European side, two guys did. It was Aberg yeah. and it was Hoygaard. And they were both like in the conversation because people have such high expectations for them. They're these young, rising stud stars. And I guess Adrian Moronk ends up as the Keegan Bradley of the European team. It's like he didn't really <laughs> do anything wrong, but he didn't quite do enough right down the stretch. With Moronk, I think there's two added wrinkles. One is the fact that he won at Marco Simone which is pretty, I mean, would be a pretty strong, uh, pretty strong point in the, in the case for him. I guess it's a slightly different course maybe then than it will be this fall, but like it, it, in terms of course fit, yeah, the guy that won there most recently is probably a good call. The other thing that's interesting with him is he tried to kind of do both. Some of these guys have been playing a full U.S. schedule. Some of these guys have been playing, you know, more of a full European schedule. He came over and played like the 
Florida swing, or he played the Genesis, the Honda Classic, the Arnold Palmer, the match play, and played okay, didn't play great. But, you know, maybe there's a chance there to pick up some more points on the European yeah. side if well, he doesn't do that, if he doesn't come over and play the Canadian Open. I don't know. There's these in, there's some interesting dynamics at play. There's there's decisions that guys are going to have to make uh, when it comes to loyalty. You look at a guy like Alexander Bjork, who's been playing lights out on the DP World Tour, top 10s in seven of his last 10 starts over there. Um, that's some pretty strong play, but wasn't enough to get him over the line. And then, uh, and then you look at, you know, what Hoygaard did and, and what Aberg did, both of them just busted through the door. Like, yeah. Think Hoyard about the difference in emotion, so well. Dylan, the difference in emotion when these picks were made, yeah. when the European picks were made, it was excitement. The new blood we've been looking to turn this, uh, page from Stenson, Garcia, Poulter, Westwood over to something new. And who's going to be the connective tissue? It's going to be Rory, Rahm, Rose, and Lowry. Um, the emotion for the American picks was angst. It was like, God, how do we, how do we take Justin Thomas? How do you, how do you get Sam Burns on this team? What got Sam Burns on this team? How do you keep Keegan Bradley, a two-time winner in this PGA Tour season, off? It was angst versus excitement, <laughs> and one week separated the two picks, and so uh, that's why I'm I'm on Team Europe at this point, and I think I probably will be unless you know something crazy happens. Um, like Rory maybe being hurt or something like that. But the the difference in what, um, I guess, the theoretical momentum of these picks, it can't be much, but it is something. There are question marks surrounding the American side more than, um, I don't know, budding optimism on the European side. And I think that that actually, forever, for the next three weeks or so, is actually kind of a big deal. So I think that the equivalent of Justin Thomas on the European side ends up being Shane Lowry. Um, but first of all, I don't know if anyone's ever been like mad at Shane Lowry. But, you know, he doesn't have a top 10 since the Honda Classic in February. Uh, he missed the playoffs altogether on the PGA Tour. Like he's not in great form, but he's also not been playing terribly. Like he has a bunch of top 20s. They're just not top 10s. He just hasn't really been contending for victories. And also it's Shane Lowry. Like he was never going to be left off of this yeah. team. Like it just yeah. wasn't going to happen in the same way, you know, JT's case was probably slightly more precarious. I think the main reaction for team Europe was, I think people still feel for Moronk in a similar way that they feel for Keegan Bradley. It's like, look, this dude played awesome. He really didn't do anything wrong. He played great. You know, he won at Marco Simone. He's, he's just not quite part of the picture. He's not a young rising, like 21 year old. He's also not part of the old guard. That's, you know, yeah. that is basically Shane Lowry. He's stuck in a little bit of this no man's land. So it's hard not to feel for him. It, he must be frustrated. He posted on social media on, uh, I think Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> I love this message because you can read it any way you want. He just wrote good luck at, Team Europe, <laughs> and it's yeah, like it, is me. this is this genuine? Is this earnest? Congratulations! A lot of no. people were like, "Man, this is so classy." It's like, or is this just the most passive aggressive post of all time? Uh, absolutely, which, like absolutely. And this is this is a guy who's won a you know a number of times now in the last fifteen months, and it's not like Nikolai Hoygaard is burning down the door, winning and contending every single week. So he's got a he's got a, a claim to it all, but I think if you if you think about Luke Donald's decision and um, what he was left with, Bob McIntyre automatically qualifying, it was always going to be a bit precarious. And like, just think about the European world beaters that Luke Donald was a, a member of when it comes to these Ryder Cup teams. Just absolute legends. Like, if you want to be on the Ryder Cup. You still have to play better than Adrian Moronk did. Like we're seeing Europe, frankly, uh, in 2021 at their lowest of lows, truly a record setting loss at Whistling Straits and trying to bounce back from that. They kind of are like all their top seven players are mostly in form, some of the best players in the world. So there is a coming out of the valley sense. And if you want to be on that team, 
buddy, buckle up and play like a little bit better. You know, Adrian Morocco was contending last weekend. If he wins and Aberg doesn't, he would be on this team. If he finishes T2 instead of T13, Luke Donald has to give him a longer look. Uh, that's and then kind of guard off the team. I guess that's what I'm really trying to pin, pin yeah, you down. He on. is. He okay. is, but Hoygaard played better on the weekend. And uh, it can come down to something as simple as that. Luke Donald made it sound like it came down to something as simple as that. And anyone who ever doesn't make a Ryder Cup team can largely point to, damn it, three more birdies at that one event within the last month, and I'm there. Two more birdies. One less bogey. Um, things like that. I think the only time anyone has ever completely played their ass off and not made the team was Billy Horschel. And they literally changed the qualification rules so that that wouldn't happen in the future. So I have no qualms with the picks. Like I said, I'm now leaning in favor of Europe. I think uh, Vegas, the odds are starting to come a lot closer to like, they're really even. close. I think <laughs> yeah. the U S is maybe about minus minus one twenty right now. So, yeah, you know, you can get the U S close to even odds just to, win the cup to retain yeah i guess just to win um they're the which better is team everyone sean <laughs> and i guess what you're saying is watch out out there yeah yeah because um i've always uh tried putting myself in zach johnson's shoes i think that's what we try to do and i've kind of when doing that i've been jealous of luke donald's simplicity he's like whoever qualifies they're kind of going to be my horses if you know, there's a couple other captain's picks that will also be horses. Your Rom, Rory, Hovland, Fitz, Hatton, Fleetwood squad. Like, I just think all those guys are going to play maybe five matches. Not all of them will, um, because there's an element of a very hilly golf course and playing 30 holes a day will take a lot out of you when you need it most in the singles matches and there are more points on the board. But um, if Rom and Rory and Hovland play anything less than five matches, I'd be shocked. Fleetwood's playing some of the best golf of his life. He's probably a five match player. Like ride your horses is something that, um, Luke Donald can do and it'll be completely defensible. And when you look at the American side, like how many horses do you have, Dylan? You have Scotty Scheffler, absolute yeah. horse. Who's yep. who's the next? Who's the second horse, right? Who's sitting or who's the second reindeer leading your your sleigh? Who's behind Rudolph? It's Xander and Cantlay. Is that that's the team that you're <laughs> gonna want? I mean, that you're gonna see that team. You're gonna see them three times. You might want to see them four times for the U.S. team. Sure, I'm not sure you will. I think you'll see them. I mean, what if you only see them twice and then maybe they split up and then maybe they each sit? I don't know, but I, I would like to see that team. I would like to see that team four times. It's just your best team. It's your it's your best overall. Well, that's where team. it gets tricky. That's where it gets really tricky. And I think the yeah. drop zone listeners are, I like to call them the smartest listeners in the golf world. They are. Uh, whether or not they that's true. <laughs> the the viewing of the Ryder Cup, like you can put out Cantley and Xander, then go shoot best ball sixty four. Um, and lose to Victor Hovland, who shoots 65 on his own. And then Ludwig adds in two birdies. And, you know, they lose the, the Americans lose one up and they actually played really, really well. Now, I'm not trying to discount the numbers and analytical process that the American side will take. But when you sit there and you watch, you know, one up losses pile up or five and four losses pile up, there's a difference here. And um, it can, it can get dark quickly as uh, at Ryder Cups, right? Like you can suddenly have a um, a session that was looking like two and a half to one and a half in your favor go three one out of your favor, and you can make hasty decisions at that point. Um, that's why it's the most entertaining event in all of golf. It comes around every two years. It switches continents. It puts uh, all of these deeply individual egos into a blender it asks uh individual players to be captains for like a two-year stretch and then like have very hard decisions over a, a, a three-day stretch and frankly like with when there's imbalance when the american side on paper is 
definitely favorites to the extent that Luke Donald, the captain of the Europeans, is saying, yeah, we're underdogs here. Like that imbalance creates a fantastic uh, viewing opportunity because there are four outcomes. There is the Europeans win and it's close. There is the Europeans win in a blowout. There's the Americans win and it's close. There's the Americans win and it's a blowout. And only one of those outcomes. Ignoring ties here, but all right. <laughs> well, ties favor the team, you know, and retaining the cup. But like those four outcomes, only one of them is going to truly be uh, a win for the Americans and a loss for the Europeans. I think if the Europeans keep it close and ultimately lose it will still be this momentum thing we got new blood we've moved forward for team europe and the Ryder cup the only result in this whole thing that like will really be this like dominant american uh optimism and feeling good show would be like a five four five point victory do you it's agree so with me funny. there yeah, I, I do agree with you, but I, I think I only agree with you because of this like world of American golfing arrogance that we live in. Like we haven't won in Europe in 30 years. And, uh, you know, if the U.S. team wins by four or five points this year, it's going to be like, oh, geez, we should just like cancel the Ryder Cup because the U.S. team <laughs> is just so dominant in this thing. It's like, well, no, we just got waxed the last time over there with, you know, Tiger and Phil and the eight of the top 12 players in the world or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, I guess I am anticipating that a little bit. One last note, Sean, on, on people not on this team. Uh, there is someone out there who's European who is playing better golf than Hoygaard, than Lowry, than Sepp Straka, than Bob McIntyre. Was not qualified to be on the European side. I'm talking about Stefan Jaeger. <laughs> I don't know if it's Steven. I think it's Stefan. S-T-E-P-H-A-N. Steven? <laughs> How do you say that? Steven. A-N. Anyway. Know, but no one's talking about him, Dylan, because no one really considered him. No one really considered him, but like, could we have gotten my guy in a couple DP events this year? Fly over? Good chance to be on the Ryder Cup squad? But I guess if you do that and then you just don't get picked anyway, then it feels like a big waste of time. Anyway, he, he comes in ranked uh, 39th, according to Data Golf in, in the world. Well ahead of Nikolai Hoygaard at 51. Well ahead of Shane Lowry at 52. Sepp Strzok at 53. And of course, the weakest link, Justin Thomas is the weakest American at 59 for reference. Mm. Bob McIntyre down there at 129th. So he is the weak link, but that does not mean that he's not going to play well. All right, let's let's move on because we're going to preview the Ryder Cup, you know, 17 different times before we actually get to the Ryder Cup. Um, the second half of this podcast should be more of a look back than a look forward. Uh, you tease it up front, Dylan. We're kind of we're filling we're filling the gap between the end of the tour season and the start of the fall season and the Ryder Cup, whatever. Um, this is this is filler season, and you've decided to do a draft. Yeah, I just want to. I want to talk about the stuff that we've already forgotten about because soon we will have forgotten a whole lot more, Sean. But right now, looking back at the PGA Tour season, I guess you wanted to bind this to just the 2023 section of the PGA Tour season. You were not you respecting why? the wraparound. Because things that happened in October and November of last year, I already forgot because it's a long time ago. It's 11 it is months, a long time ago. ago. Tony Finau winning, uh, yeah. Danny Willett, three wiggling. Yeah, so like, the, the, the whole idea of a you're saying it's reasonable that you would have forgotten those things anyway yes a lot of things happen in the pga tour season we're going to draft the things that happened very recently that you've already forgotten about because of just how crazy the golf year has been um and i've got five dylan um yeah. i've also got three also receiving votes those would be alternates um how do you want to you want to go from five down to one we want to go from one down to five. Do you want me? To I kind of do want to go from five down to one. I guess just to to yeah. So we finished with what we think are like the wow. This is this is crazy to think about. All right. So so it's with, not. It's sort of said, a reverse draft. Yeah. Um. We'll we'll start at fives on each side, and then I will interject with an also receiving vote anytime that we overlap. 
Okay. All right. I don't, I want you to start. All right. So this is like, this is pretty, um, this is a softball. This is a good natured feeling, uh, thing that you guys maybe already forgot, but feel like, good. So yeah, it's, for there. it's, it's just that this is the year in which we saw the first mic'd up on course interview oh. with Max Homa. It came at Tory Pines during the Farmers Insurance Open. This is an event that Max Homa won. And during the third round, which is played on Friday at Tory, he put one AirPod in his left ear and he played the 13th hole, which is a par five. It's, I think, the longest hole on the property. It's an architecturally interesting and difficult hole. He ended up having a rules official have to come out and give him a ruling. He ended up making a joke about Patrick Reed. And this was all just pushing the broadcast down the skateboard ramp to say, we're going to do this now. Let's see how it feels. A week later, we get Keith Mitchell uh, at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am mic'd up. He contends and he damn near wins that event. And all of this leads to at the literal Masters tournament, we had Rory and Justin Thomas giving interviews while playing Augusta National. And whether that... Um, How'd that work was, out for them, Sean? <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out well for them. But the point is, uh, that is just peeling back layers of the onion that we are not used to, to enjoying um, and that we know is where the content really lives. And so it's easy to forget now that it's become kind of ubiquitous that happened for the first time this year in January in San Diego. And I just would like to remind everyone of it. Max Homa walked so Michael Block could run, Sean. Uh, <laughs> that's a good place to start. I want to go with two guys that were playing in PGA Tour events as recently as Tory, as the Amex, as I believe the Genesis. Danny Lee and Brendan Steele were still playing golf on the PGA Tour this season before they were part of the crop of guys that left for Live. It was a quieter year for uh, for Live farming on the PGA Tour and, and poaching guys, but it was not completely without poaching. I mean, we still saw a crew. Uh, who else was on there? Mito Pereira was kind of the headliner. Thomas Peters was, I think, the highest ranked guy in the world to go over. But yeah, Brendan Steele and Danny Lee were playing on the PGA you're, Tour right up until the moment that they did not. You're forgetting the most important context. If I recall correctly, and that's kind of yes. the whole basis of this podcast, didn't the report about Danny Lee going to live come out during the last tournament he was supposed to play, and did he not WD from that tournament? Well, so that's what I was trying to remember. He he was at the Genesis. I thought he just missed the cut and then disappeared quietly into the night. Um, but it definitely came out like while he was on the course because I remember we were there and we were like, we should really send someone to go talk to Danny Lee. And then he was shooting like 78 and something else was happening. And it slipped through the cracks, and before we knew it, he was gone. That's kind of how okay. I remember it. But. So maybe he didn't WD, but very importantly, he wins his first live event, <laughs> which was absolute fodder for the live uh, stands, if you will, because he wasn't playing well on the PGA Tour. Then goes out to live and then wins. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that was making the argument that they thought it was. Well, either it is and it isn't. It's like either like this guy couldn't do it on the PGA Tour and then he does it on Liv, or Liv rejuvenated him and it's mm -hmm. exactly what he needed to win. Um, all right, I for, I do forgot that that happened because um, those guys just feel like Live forever guys now. Um, also in January, also I believe the same week as Tory Pines, I think. Um, we had T gate Dylan. Do you remember T gate? Wait, oh, you, you don't what happened? Everyone's oh, T -Gate. oh my God. <laughs> wow. Forgot. I did forget about this. Oh, right, well, I totally forgot about this. For everyone else who forgot about this, um, in Dubai, late January, it's kind of where Rory McIlroy likes to start his season. Uh, he was on the range with Harry diamond, his caddy, Patrick Reed, as a member of the DP World Tour, was kind of on his little Middle East swing uh, before the Saudi International Invitational. Can't remember what it is. Uh, Patrick Reed walks down the range, went up to Rory, 
and Harry. Rory had kind of bent down to, I don't know, maybe set up his track man or something. And Patrick Reed shakes Harry's hand and then very clearly puts his hand out to shake Rory's hand. And Rory did not look up at him. And Patrick kind of eventually pulls his hand back and takes a step back like, are you, are you kind of kidding me? And then turns to walk away, grabs a tee from his pocket and then throws the tee, a four aces tee, mind you, at Rory's direction. Um, do you remember why Rory didn't shake Patrick Reed's hand? Because he didn't feel like it, basically. He just didn't <laughs> want to talk there. to him because Patrick Reed had had uh, effectively just sued him. Yes. It was a little more nuanced than that. It was really, it was like Patrick Reed's lawyer who was filing a lawsuit on behalf of Liv had uh, subpoenaed Rory on either Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve. I can't remember which one. Yeah, you're close. Uh, so Rory was asked about it after the round. This is his quote. I was subpoenaed by his lawyer on Christmas Eve, trying to have a nice time with my family. Someone shows up in your doorstep and delivers that. You're not going to take that well. Um, and then speaking later that day after McElroy, Reed said, we all know where it came from being a part of Liv. Since my tees are team aces, Liv tees, I flicked him one. It was kind of funny. It was a kind of funny shot back. Funny how a small little flick has turned into basically me stabbing him and throwing a tee at him. The quote <laughs> continues. It's unfortunate because we've always had a good relationship, but it is one of those things. If you're going to act like an immature little child, then you might as well be treated like one. Wow. Unquote. Forgot how spicy that was. Uh, yeah. Very bold. spicy. I mean, P Reed's ability to sort of, uh, dissociate like certain things from certain other things in his life has always been remarkable. Like, it, and I think he showed it that week again with the way, first of all, the way that he thought Rory was going to react to him in a positive way. Like, Hey man, it's still all good. Right. Like we're, we're cool. <laughs> and then to almost go and nearly win the golf tournament too, because yeah. What followed, which I'd also forgotten most, it was T-Gate and then it was Tree-Gate, right? Where his ball got stuck in a tree. Yes. Something but they also both like happened. contended. They almost, I think they almost played together on the weekend. Yeah. Man, yeah, Dubai is a Second, Seems. Rory had to make a birdie on 18 just to yeah. beat him. Something like yeah. that. It was a fantastic, that tournament is just always good for content late January when the PJ tours on the West coast um, kind of carries us through Sundays. All right. What's your number four uh, of your draft? Just a, you know, simpler one, but worth noting Lucas Glover went 19 consecutive events without a top 30. This dates back to the end of last season. Um, but it now feels like ancient history that Lucas Glover was a guy who could barely make contact with the ball while putting it. Now he's a guy that was in the Ryder Cup conversation that was very much a presence. He was in one of the final groups at the Tour Championship. Uh, he won several million dollars there. But yeah, there was a long time there where he could not play golf at a very high level. He did not qualify for a single major championship this year <laughs> for a very different reason than Ludwig. <laughs> so yeah, I just thought that that was worth shouting out that like Things were tough for this guy. I wanted to also, you know, sort of wrap Brian Harmon into that, who I remember we were sitting at a press conference at the U.S. Open, and he was talking about how bleak things had been for him, and it was just such a relief to play one good round. Mm -hmm. He would end up winning the Open Championship. So there's a, a couple of these guys. But, yeah, Lucas Glover, 19 events in a row without a top 30. That's bleak. At least we have video footage of some of the putts before he Ooh. became a good putter again. Um, because that's your visual. You won't forget it once you see a couple of those. Um, all right. So number three for me is a little cheap because I'm kind of wrapping a lot of things into one, but I think we have publicly sort of forgotten about Tiger Woods entire Genesis mm -hmm. invitational in February. I'm talking about the entire event, right? He opens that week shooting under par. This is his first time playing golf in front of the public in two months. This is his first time competing in a PGA Tour event in seven months. Uh, since the Open Championship, Dylan, when he missed the cut, shot nine over par at St. Andrews, we didn't see him hit another PGA Tour event golf shot 
until the Genesis Invitational at a course he doesn't play well at, at a course tournament he's hosting. Yeah, all we'd seen is the the PNC and a little match action. Like, yeah, we we didn't know what to expect. So that's how he started his week. Now, (laughs) his first round was also tampon gate, Dylan. Oh, my gosh. I I don't want to make fun of what I thought is and was a, like a pretty serious mistake on his behalf. Um, but this again was his first public appearance. He's playing in a massive threesome with Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas, the mega grouping. And he's playing pretty well. He's hitting the ball a long way. Everyone's kind of amazed at the golf that he's playing. Right. And he grabs a tampon from uh, one of the bathrooms there on site. And hands it to Justin Thomas uh, after outdriving JT on, I think the, got it, maybe at the sixth hole at Riv and um, just set fire to the flames of the PGA Tour coverage that week in ways I don't think he meant to, but in ways he should have been very easily able to avoid. Uh, it just caused so much attention to him in ways that, he is smarter than he did not have to do that. He could have avoided it. That was how he returned to the PGA tour. Um, if you have any thoughts on that, I would interject now or I can continue. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would only say that that was one wedge issue in the culture war that one, I did not see coming and two, I really did not have any interest in engaging in. It was just sort of like one giant eye roll for me of like, God, let's just like not make this the most important issue in golf this week. This was stupid, but I couldn't also quite muster the urge to do more than just sort of roll my eyes at it. So I think that's where I I still stand. I'm glad that I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, it was really stupid um, of tiger to do that. So that's where I'll leave it. Then (laughs) on Saturday, he shot 67 in the third round a round that was bested by only two people in the entire field, one of which was peak John Rahm. Truly John Rahm playing the best golf of his life at Riv was one of two people in the field to beat Tiger freaking Woods at whatever he was, 47, I think, at the time. Maybe he's 48. I can't remember now. But the point is, holy hell, this guy has shot-making skills still. Um, I think he hit like... 15 greens that day made it look so so simple he was hitting greens and two on par fives which isn't a big deal except for the guy he's just been reconstructed so many times he's limping all over this golf course and still flushing it um that was something that you know it's one of the rounds of the year i think that um will never get remembered because he didn't win it wasn't in a major but it was certainly um gosh fun to write about fun to be there for i had tiger in this slot also um but just from a slightly different lens in the sense that tiger went two for two and cuts made this year on the pga tour it feels like so long ago that tiger was walking in public so long ago since he was playing in a pga tour event um he didn't exactly rack up the FedEx Cup points. I was looking at that. He finished 228th in the FedEx Cup, one slot ahead of Fred Couples, something you also <laughs> would likely forget that Freddie once again made the cut at the Masters this year. Uh, but yeah, Tiger played two PGA Tour events, the Genesis and the Masters, made the cut at both. The Masters cut was down to the wire, needed some help from Justin Thomas in the rain to get there. Um but yeah, and and the other part to that that I wanted to include was that Joe LaCava was still Tiger Woods' full-time caddy at the start yeah, of the yeah. year through the Masters until we saw him switch over. Now you think Joe LaCava, you think DeWalt, you think Patrick Cantlay. You've got that kind of association already going now. Um, yeah, it's in, it's interesting times for Team Woods who have seen him. You know, there's been the, the paparazzi style like junior golf, uh there's tiger walking around palm beach gardens like photos that have now emerged so it seems like he's making some progress but yeah it was not that long ago that he was playing on the weekend at augusta national yeah he had surgery this year right to yeah whatever plantar fasciitis that's (laughs) that's what people are aware of yeah is the 
is the surgery. Um, That's like Tiger's present. But, talk about a storyline that we have forgotten about is just like who's going to loop for him whenever he returns when the Masters kicks off next year or Genesis Invitational or even the father son. Who are you? Who are you rooting for? Who would be the best possible caddy for Tiger Woods? Maybe you should just get Charlie out there. No, Charlie's too small. I know he's growing, boy, but that's a and big that old bag. Big, that's a big bag. Um, you know what? Let's roll back the clock, the clock and bring back like the people who used to caddy for him. Like, Maybe uh, Fluff? Like By Byron Bell was one of his oh, yeah, first yeah. caddies. Like, one of his best buddies back in high school. Not sure if they're still buddies. I think they are. Um, you know, Steinberg. You know, Brian. why not have Mark Steinberg? loop for him Steiny's an agent he's always already at these tour events i think tiger yeah you know he'll, he'll take it seriously he needs a he needs a good caddy i mean lakava was certainly helping him in certain ways um but the list of people that tiger respects on that level are uh, it's a short list um billy foster we should reach out just to kind of say we can be available drop zone we could do you know all, all those do, things all do tuesday thursday friday sunday yeah, you would want me on the bag for Sunday. That's a good call. Um, one of my also receiving votes was I had um, I had written this down with the quote from Succession: "I love you, but you are not serious people." And that had to do with Tiger Woods making the cut, and that would be what Tiger Logan Roy would be saying to Rory McIlroy, Kendall Roy, and Justin Thomas. <laughs> um, the other Roy brother is escaping me right now. Um, Connor. <laughs> no. Um, basically just like Tiger Woods making the cut, limping his ass off at 47 in the rain. All he's got is hands. That's all he's got. He's at the Masters. One of the easiest cuts in the pro golf world to make if you are, if you're a baller, <laughs> right? And both Rory and JT, his two PGA Tour beloved sons, don't make the cut, and yet Tiger does. It, it just reminds me of that scene in Succession when, uh, yeah, it's, it's Roman and Kendall are told by their father, I love you, but you are not serious people. Man, Rory really went on full tilt that tournament. He played in the good wave too, right? Missed the cut from the good wave. Uh, producer Darren points out Steve Williams would be the optimal choice for Tiger, and that's because he's correct. That's because uh, producer Darren is a drop zone listener, and he heard me say that take way back when, when uh, we talked about this news for the first time. Um, all right, I'll continue pushing us forward. The number two moment for me uh, that people have already forgotten is just that Phil Mickelson shot 65 during the final round of the Masters, finished T2. At age 52, the lowest final round in his master's career. He shot 31 in the back nine. And the only reason this is relevant is not because he finished T2, but because he became the clubhouse leader. And at, at the moment in which he hits that birdie putt on 18 for 65, he jumps Jordan Spieth, who was in his group and made bogey on 18. Yeah. But Phil becomes the clubhouse leader, and John Rahm is on the 10th green about to hit two of the more difficult tee shots in the entire world of pro golf. John Rahm has made a bogey on nine. He has shot 38 on the back nine that morning and he has a two shot lead over Phil who's in the house about to go hang out, put his feet up and say, can you beat me? The, the king of live golf wearing his high flyers gear just shot 65 and it made us all a little bit worried for like one hour that he had maybe somehow done it again. Unthinkable. I mean, <laughs> what an insane moment that was. We like returned to reality at the PGA where he made the cut and, you know, finished 60th or something. But like in that moment, it was like, no way this guy <laughs> did this again. A year ago, he, hadn't played the masters because he was effectively suspended from the PGA tour. And then he hadn't defended his title at the PGA championship. Like the full circle 
I certainly wouldn't say it's a redemption story because I'm not sure it changed the way anyone felt about Phil Mickelson's decisions and what he had done. Like that was already, you were either pro Phil or you weren't, but the way that people thought about Phil's golf, it was just a reminder, like this guy still has it, whatever that yeah. it factor is. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. It's I remember this, him. this podcast actually got roasted a, a few years ago by five thirty-eight for, you know, trying to quantify, trying to you explain <laughs> what, yeah, me specifically, trying to explain that Phil Mickelson still just has some unquantifiable thing that helped him win the 2021 PGA uh, at 50 plus years old. But there's no real other way to explain it other than like he doesn't play well for a long time and then can dial it up in these very specific situations when his, when the tournament has his complete attention. Uh, and when he is just locked in, suddenly, boom, there you go. It's 65 on Sunday. It's T2 at Augusta in the Live versus PGA Tour Masters. Insanity. Yeah. Part of what made that amazing was, and this is also very easily forgotten, is that Mickelson called his shot. He had been doing nothing in Live events, had not won. He still hasn't won on Live. But then on Friday afternoon, at the Masters, he says, quote, I'm going to go on a tear pretty soon. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think it. You look at the scores, but I've been playing exactly how I played yesterday, hitting the ball great, turning 65s, 66s into 77s. I'm ready to go on a tear. 48 hours later, he does. I think what makes it even more remarkable is like Phil hasn't finished in the top 10 in a live event before or since in 2023 <laughs> like he has no other his only top 10 uh, i guess he just finished t9 at live bedminster so i take Don't that back but, but but before and after that in the year 2023 yeah he missed the cut at the uh saudi international and then just a whole bunch of nothing with a t2 at the masters the biggest event of the year sprinkled in so nothing but respect for that performance uh truly something special but yeah, I, I would say that whether people had forgotten about it or not, I guess is debatable, but it's, it's, it's I think so. We, we had an hour to think about it and then John Rom closed it out. But yeah, you know, Brooks Kepka, who was unbeatable that week until Sunday morning, like if John Rom doesn't exist, suddenly it's Brooks backing up to Phil Mickelson and it gets real eerie for a little bit there on the back nine. Um, so anyway. That is, uh, that's my number two. Can you push us forward? Yeah, my number two is Jason Day breaking a five-year winless drought, and not just breaking a five-year winless. You forgot drought, about that. I think that I think. Look, people have not forgotten about Ricky Fowler breaking his winless drought, but I feel like Jason Day has now gotten like lost in the shuffle because you know he's not part of this Ryder Cup conversation. He wasn't really like a big factor at the Tour Championship or anything like that. But the way he did it on Mother's Day, just after losing his mother, by shooting 62 on the final round to uh, to beat Ekro and Siwoo Kim by a single shot, like that was a dramatic, dramatic way to win, uh, to really announce his return, that he's back, back. It was just a pretty special moment. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the J-Day story is... is it's like hard to tell like when it's going to be over. <laughs> um, I think he's not playing a lot of golf this fall. His wife is giving birth to, I think their fifth child. Um, you know, his peak was truly as high as peaks get. Um, maybe, you know, data golf would rank him higher than Jordan Spieth's peak, higher than Dustin Johnson's peak, higher than Rory McIlroy's peak. He shined absolutely the brightest. The talent, it was immense. Um, so it's cool to see him back there, but it, it certainly is. It's like for him, just sustenance is going to be pretty tricky. Um, so I would like him to be around more. I think he's truly one of the best, uh, one of the top, like good guys in the game, if you will. Um, but that doesn't. And mean I guess it was also, it was a bit of a reminder of like, this is the way the PGA tour is going to look now is we're going to get these secondary storylines in the lesser events and the non-designated events. It's not to say that Jason Day wouldn't have won if this was a full field with all the top PJ Tour stars there, 
But we did see guys like Ricky Fowler win. Uh, Chris Kirk had a very emotional, very cool victory. There were these secondary storylines in fields that didn't quite have the same depth, partly as a result of, you know, the increased haves and have nots vibe on the PGA tour between those top yeah. events and the secondary ones. All right. So I think the biggest thing that people are maybe forgetting about this year is probably going to be one, the same one that you have. I'm guessing because we've done a really good, we've done a really good job of not overlapping, but mm -hmm. for me, the biggest thing that feels like it maybe didn't happen is because Augusta National did a really good job at making it seem like it didn't happen. And How do we do it the same one? We have the same number the one. Massive pine trees, three yeah. of them that fell across the 17th hole walkway during the second, third round of the Masters. See, I can't even remember what round it was, Dylan, because it came during the weirdest eeriest day at augusta national it's raining all day long it gets windy at some point these massive timbers crack and you know they had already cleared the course of patrons during a uh, weather delay earlier in the day so that meant a lot of people had left the grounds and not come back that cleared more area for these trees to fall the trees allegedly we're right next to each other, and one person was in between two of them as they mm -hmm. fell and hit the turf. That's what I was told by a couple of patrons. <laughs> Frankly, I was in the bathroom at the media center <laughs> with my phone watching uh, as I was washing my hands. This message come through like, can you believe this? I watched it in the bathroom, and I didn't even stop at my desk. I went straight out to see what the hell was happening. There's a lot of people that didn't know that it had happened. They had heard this sonic boom of of wood smashing into the turf and uh it's just amazing that we could maybe forget about it but because like espn kind of cuts away cbs cuts away uh it just like the immediate reaction was like what happened at pristine augusta national where everything is perfect this cannot is this fake is it like what is going on here yeah. um luckily <laughs> there's enough archived footage and screenshots you know golf twitter was working at its absolute best in that moment that um that we saw it take place but my god it is it would be the number one sports story of the year i think if a single person was hit by these trees and there's not another scenario that you could draw up that it would take place and not have someone get hurt but there were no injuries and it's just amazing to me in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, so this was Friday, um, right before they okay. suspended play. And you're totally right. I mean, we were talking about it that, that night of like, oh, my God. Like, what did we almost just see? And you're also right that it was not a situation because it's Augusta National. People don't have their phones out, which my first thought was, okay, that's why we didn't see video of it. Like no one happened to be recording, so we didn't get video of it. Second thought was like, if people had had their phones, they wouldn't have been as alert. People would not have been as as yeah. able to get out of the way. Like there's so many things that had to go right for this to not end in tragedy. And instead, it's just kind of a fun fact. Like this yeah. was, a, <laughs> check out this crazy thing. And, uh, you know, the group... I, I need to go back and see because there was a group that was putting on 16 at the time. And I, I want to say they finished putting out and someone three putted and was like near the cut line at the time, you know, cause it's a, a real, like, how am I supposed to chip with that going on situation? Um, because yeah, three of the biggest trees you could ever imagine just fall right over. But yeah, sure enough by Saturday, you could hardly, hardly tell that anything had happened. Um, I am, I'm going to find my story uh, or try to find my story um, because uh, I really, you know, boots on the ground went sprinting after this story. And I'll tell you exactly what happened. One second here. Here we go. Patrons react to falling trees at the Masters. Um, Sergio Garcia had just played from the green side bunker on 15. Larry Mize was sizing up a putt on 16. Um, and 
Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it was amateur Harrison Crow. Yeah. He was like, he was the one who had just three putted. He's pissed off. He turns his back to the camera and what means his face right to these trees and you hear the crack and, um, Minwoo Lee like shuddered basically like turned away from this tree because he like didn't want to see something bad happen. I mean, it's just, there's no other place. There's no other golf tournament in the world that this could happen and no one could get hurt. And then also, also what is covered in my story is the fact that nobody was down there. When I got down there, they had cleared the property. They already had chainsaws out, like taking care of the scene. And the next morning, when you walk down there, it was just a bunch of like diamond dry kind of green stuff that had been, you know, masked over, I guess, the remains of, of the tree trunk. Um, it, it's truly nuts. And um, I just you, you see the photos and it's like, wait, what the hell? <laughs> it looks like yeah. almost carnage. Um, but anyway. two things on that Harrison Crow, I, I believe one of his quotes was he called it hairy and scary. And his second quote was. Uh, shit myself. <laughs> so I believe those were both from Harrison Crow. But yeah, right, you so mentioned had... this, but like the fact that there was just someone that was someone that didn't move out of the way, but was still, I believe, in their chair. And then you see one tree fall on either side of her. If you like look at the video, it's just like just right. bonkers. So let's let's wrap up here with a couple of the alternate also receiving votes. Um, Darren Real, our producer, has chimed in and said. <clears throat> We need to address the Sandy Lyle elephant in the room. And at the exact same time that these trees were falling, Dylan, Sandy Lyle's master's career was being wrapped up. <laughs> and uh, Nick Piastowski, a senior editor writer at golf.com, finds the most incredible, ridiculous stories. He happened to be out there and... Um, <laughs> He found Jason Kokrak extremely pissed off because Sandy Lyle had 12 feet left, I think for par, to finish his master's career with a little bit of a highlight. And this is on the 18th hole. And uh, they blew the horn and they would not let Sandy Lyle finish. And Jason Kokrak's words were, it's chicken shit. Because he wanted Sandy Lyle to have a lovely little moment. Um and there was like 500 people surrounding the green. He said it would have been a pretty cool moment for Sandy Lyle. I asked them for a special exemption. They said they weren't even going to blow the horn for a few more minutes, but the trees came down on 17. I said this is a moment he's not going to get again, so I think Augusta National and the Rules Committee should be ashamed of themselves. And I'm really disappointed for him and his family to not be able to have that moment. Um, the lady said it was above my pay grade, Kokrak told golf.com. And I said, this isn't something about pay grade or anything like that. This is a moment in history that he won't get back. You guys have ruined it. Um, I'm probably not doing this story justice, but ultimately. No, you happened, are. I mean, <laughs> Sandy yeah. Lyle wanted to finish. Jason Kokrak needed him to finish for the moment. Jason Kokrak said, yeah, you know, he came back the next morning to watch and be there for Lyle's finish as well. Um, but it just kind of left a, you know, an oddly weird note. I wouldn't even say it's a sour note because like, I mean, just truly an unbelievable story, combination of characters, things that would have, yeah, these trees fell down on the golf course at Augusta, which affected Sandy Lyle having an important moment at Augusta. <laughs> and the guy that rides in on the, the Sandy Lyle's white knight is Jason Kokrak. Like <laughs> that you just, <laughs> You didn't see that coming. You did not have that on the, I did not have that on my big board. No, definitely not. Um, so that is, I mean, that could have been one of the, you know, adjacent things to our, our ranking. Uh, another thing that we forgot, this is really minor, but it could be major in terms of how we think about this person. But Ricky Fowler's win in Detroit. Do you remember that? Middle I of do. summer. It came in a playoff. Do you remember who was in the playoff? All right. Adam no. Hadwin and Colin Morikawa. Uh, um, do you remember what yep. happened? Do you remember where Ricky Ricky's tee shot went in that playoff? You know, this guy who's been coming back and finishing in the top 20 in like 11 straight events. This is his chance to break through. This is the, you know, 
the blaze orange guy who's on this comeback with Butch Harmon. Do you remember what he where his first tee ball went? Where did his tee shot go, Sean? It went launched way out to the right into the rough, a place that yeah. you just don't make birdie from. The angle was bad. It was kind of up against the rocket mortgage uh, signage. And, you know, Ricky is a rocket mortgage guy. It was kind of all playing into this fact that he is the marketing king, uh, sponsors up the wazoo. But what was interesting is that it had been dumping rain all week long and there was casual water where Ricky took a stance to hit this pretty pretty hard shot pretty difficult damn near impossible to get it close to this back pin there's casual water which means free relief free drop gets a better angle gets a better lie hits it to what a really it's so, a really good shot from there yeah and makes the birdie putt to win in a playoff against two guys who were in the fairway mind you um and that is just uh something i think that will be forgotten when this is like the crowning achievement of ricky fowler's year this massive comeback it does not happen i don't think unless he gets that casual water relief tough tough year when it comes to colin morikawa being near the lead i, I was looking back and didn't want to include it because it was kind of a bummer but losing a six shot lead in the final day of the first tournament of 2023 the century to a uh, hard charging john rom that was unfortunate uh but notable six shot leads don't often go away like that with top players you know what i think that was that was just the universe giving john rom a win for the six shot lead he had through 54 holes at the memorial in 2020 mm -hmm. when he tested positive for covid and you course know correction yeah course correction i mean patrick cantley and colin morikawa were then tied for the lead so Morikawa lost both those instances um and Patrick Catley won one of them and Rom won the other Colin's gotta have one coming here I guess sometime soon um all right my final note on this front things that I think we've forgotten about already in part because Brooks Kepka has stopped playing well since the middle of summer is that Claude Harmon went buck wild after brooks won the pga championship um there are all these questions immediately asked of brooks how does this win feel you know have you talked to greg norman is this a victory for live golf and he didn't really give us any fantastic answers in that moment but his coach was the one kind of doing all the talking claude Harmon was uh was talking to a couple of reporters one of which adam shupak kind of basically printed the entire transcript um but Claude's response to Brooks winning the PGA was basically to have all the confirmation bias hindsight in the world and say, see, you guys have been wrong about this live crap the whole time. He was he was making ridiculous analogies. I wrote down here that this was kind of like a, a poker player winning one hand and then just immediately getting like reckless and going all in with all of his takes. Um, but he was conflating like NBC owning the rights to broadcast the Olympics in China with Brooks taking uh, Saudi money. Um, he was conflating Brooks going to live with Justin Verlander's free agency decision to join the New York Metropolitans. Um, he was taking stray shots at the media coverage of Will Zalatoris saying, quote, you guys are ready to crown him as the second coming of Christ. Um, all while Will Zalatoris is hurt and, like <laughs> off the field. It was the weirdest response you'll ever get from a coach uh, from someone who had clearly been thinking about a lot of these things and kind of just a hindsight king moment um that didn't sit well with really anybody and i'm guessing probably even with brooks kepka himself so that is something i don't want us to forget for the next time kind of claude speaks up or brooks wins were you crowning will zalatoris is that, is that a shot I, at you I, god i sure i certainly was not but um I know people like him uh, as a you know future star, but man, hasn't played much golf not in a Claude. while. No. Uh, yeah, that was spice. That was uh, you put it well. I mean, Brooks was asked about it and was basically like, "This is a win for Brooks. <laughs> this is me, dog. Is not a, a league did not win this event. I'm the PGA champion. Um, that was fun." Uh, we have one more submission from our producer. 
This is important, in. actually, because yeah. I I thought about this. I felt like it was still recent enough that people have not forgotten about it. But it is definitely a footnote in history because, look, first of all, Nick Taylor makes an epic, epic putt. 74 feet, I believe, to win his home open, Dylan, during the week in which the PGA yeah. Tour announced it would merge business interests with the Saudi mm -hmm. PIF. Everything is distracting you away from the golf Nick Taylor reels you back in. And maybe, maybe tensions are a little high. Maybe, maybe security is just a little bit on edge, but maybe <laughs> it's just the atmosphere is so good. But in, you know, a man wearing a plain hoodie and a baseball cap gets bundled on the 18th green, coming out to celebrate with his friend Nick Taylor, Adam Hadwin, not doing it, you know. I guess really just proving the the uh, proving the reputation that golfers that pro golfers just look like regular dudes when they're dressed in street clothes. Adam Didn't Hadwin have got champagne in his hand. Wasn't wasn't he carrying a bottle of champagne? I think he was carrying a bottle of champagne. And what is you know, what is he gonna do to Nick Taylor in that moment? That security was like, oh shit. protester, let me plant him into the putting surface. I don't know, but gosh, he was, and that was right before the U.S. Open because I remember then what you went and tracked him down at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I went and said hi to Adam. And how you doing? Was, how are your ribs? Yeah, man, my ribs are all good, uh, all in good fun. Um, Adam Hadwin's wife made a lot of fun out of it. She enjoyed, I think, seeing her husband getting jacked up. Um, but yeah, gosh, that one I haven't quite forgotten yet. In part because I was at the Canadian Open that week, and then I left, and that would have been one hell of a reporting scene. It could have been you. Could have been, been, yeah, gosh, could have been me. Um, cozy with the Canadians. Anyway, I, you think that's probably enough? You got any more submissions? I think for now. I mean, the really good stuff is the stuff we forgot and we couldn't even remember. You know, so I'm sure that there's a lot that's of good stuff idea. that we just weren't able to dig back up yet. But you know, by the end of the year, in our year in review, we'll get back to it. Um, Sean, it's been lovely chatting with you. I hope you had a nice Labor Day weekend. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll are we going to be back next week? We'll try and be back next week. A lot, lot going on, um, but we've got big match play season ahead of us, both at the bachelor party I'm going to, but then in Spain at the Solheim Cup and then in Italy at the Ryder Cup. Are so, you going to the same bachelor party as Rory McElroy? No, I believe his is in, um, more like his in Ibiza. Yeah, no, he, like he's going to some uh, Caribbean island for a bachelor party. I'm going to Myrtle Beach, baby. Same, same thing. All right. Um, well, shout out to the Zonies. Love you guys. See you soon. <laughs>